Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganari and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, A Day in the Life, Theories of Time. A historian should never dismiss as unserious ideas that historical figures took seriously. Take astrology. Nowadays, horoscopes are usually seen as an amusement included in newspapers along with the comic strips. In former ages, though, astrology was serious business, a way of legitimizing political rule and an important discipline. We now distinguish sharply between astronomy and astrology, the first a science, the second a pseudoscience. But in ancient and medieval societies, an expert in one was liable to be expert in the other, with the 2nd century AD scientist Ptolemy leading the way. Astrology is also a star example of the way that ideas travel between cultures. Babylonian astronomical ideas and techniques for time measurement influenced Indian astrologers in the Mauryan period, and Greek astrological writing was translated into Sanskrit in the 2nd century AD. By the 4th and 5th centuries, we even see Indians deploying the Greek theory of epicycles, according to which planets are seated on smaller rotating spheres carried by larger celestial spheres. Aside from its importance as a marker of cultural exchange, there is also the fact that astrology embodies a particular view of the cosmos and our place in it. It is, among other things, the study of time. This did not escape the 5th century BC author Lagada, who wrote, The Vedas went forth for the sake of the sacrifices. The sacrifices were established as proceeding regularly in time. Therefore, he who knows astrology, this science of time, knows all. Here, Ladaga is alluding to the fact that astronomical measurements were used to determine the auspicious moment for certain Vedic rituals. He calls astrology the science of time because it is by studying the motions of the stars that the Indians, and for that matter, we, divide time. The days and years of our lives are astronomically defined. But the ancient Indian scientists didn't stop with days and years. They envisioned much larger spans of time, the days in the life of God or Brahma. This brings us to a notorious feature of ancient Indian thought, the cosmic world cycle. You may have heard terms like kalpa or yuga and have the vague sense that these are extremely long periods of time with which the Indians measured the age of the universe. Kalpa, a word that already appears in the inscriptions of Ashoka with the meaning of a very long time, came to be the name for one Brahma day, which is a very long time indeed. We know that Indian deities needed to be very patient. Just remember Indra waiting 101 years to receive instruction from Prajapati. But that's nothing compared to the patience of Brahma. His day lasts as long as the entire cosmic cycle, reckoned as 4.32 billion years. And he lives for 72,000 such days, so if you want to figure out his full lifespan, you're going to need a calculator with an extra wide screen. Each of his days sees a cycle in which the cosmos is first created, then endures, and is finally destroyed. This idea of a destructive world cycle does not yet appear in the early Vedas, but is thematized in the Mahabharata. An expert on the topic, Luis González Riman, has written that 
By the end of the Vedic period and the time of the composition of the Mahabharata, the importance of time as a destructive force had reached new heights, and the word kala, meaning time, had practically become synonymous with death. Another pessimistic idea, also found in the Mahabharata, is that each world cycle is subdivided into four periods of unequal lengths, characterized by gradual degradation and loss of dharma, as manifested, for instance, in shorter lifespans for humans. The four subperiods, or yugas, are named after four unequally valuable throws in a game of dice. Depressingly, we're now living in the time corresponding to the least valuable throw, known as the Kali, which is why our age is called a Kali Yuga, and our ideal lifespan is a mere 100 years. If you're a nervous type, the next thing you will probably want to know is how close we are to the end of the present cycle. Here, views varied. Astrologers calculated the most recent great conjunction of the stars, from which the Kali Yuga began, as having occurred relatively recently, in 3102 BC. That would give us hundreds of thousands of years until the end of our age. But we also find texts predicting a more imminent cosmic demise, perhaps a reflection of the destabilizing invasion of India by foreign armies in the period between the Mauryan and Gupta empires. This awe-inspiring conception of cosmic time forms the background to such ideas as karmic retribution and reincarnation. One thing's for sure, if you escape just punishment for your misdeeds, it won't be for lack of time. The gods, too, are subject to time and even live through daily cycles, with cosmic genesis and destruction correlated to dawn and dusk. This might seem to suggest that time is itself a kind of divine principle or even a principle beyond divinity. But that notion finds full expression only in one unusual passage of the Veda, which has all things, including the creator god Prajabati, being originated by time itself. It is not a doctrine that catches on in Vedic literature. In fact, one of the Upanishads explicitly rejects the claim that time is a creative principle. The Vedic philosophical tradition goes further still in this metaphysical demotion of time by doubting whether it is real at all. We might expect this in the Vedanta tradition, especially in its Advaita variety, where all things other than Brahman are exposed as illusions. One of the more interesting treatments of time from a broadly Vedanta point of view does not go quite that far. This is a section of the Vakya Padiya written by the grammarian philosopher Bhatrihari. He already introduces time as a topic at the outset of his treatise, explaining that it conditions the appearance of the one Brahman as many things that are subject to growth and decay. On this reckoning, time is not exactly unreal, but a mere instrument or power through which Brahman makes itself manifest in the form of our multifarious, changing world. Because of this, all things in the phenomenal world are bound to time, like birds held captive by strings. Still, from the point of view of Brahman, and of the Vedanta philosopher too, there is no real difference between past, present, and future. As usual in Sanskrit grammar, Bhatrihari puts the performance of an action at the center of his analysis of time. When we use the three tenses, this is nothing but an attitude we take towards actions. Past tense marks actions that have already been performed, present tense actions that are in the midst of being completed, and future tense actions that have not yet been undertaken.
other thinkers in the Vedic tradition adopt even more skeptical views. Samkhya and yoga, in particular, claim that time is merely a product of our minds. The Yoga Sutra speaks of a knowledge that arises from our awareness of moments and succession. This is rather obscure, par for the course with the Yoga Sutra. Fortunately, the accompanying commentary explains that a moment is the smallest part of time, just as an atom is the smallest part of matter. We mentally combine moments to produce an impression of flowing, continuous time, but time is nothing real out in the world. Most of us see things only from the perspective of the present moment, and thus do not realize that past and future are also real, even if only present events are manifest. Similarly, the Samkhya commentators take their cue from a sutra in the Samkhya Karika, which says that the external senses grasp only the present, whereas the mental organ can also grasp past and future. Gaudapada explains that the mind can infer past and future events from present perceptions, as with the familiar examples of realizing it must have rained because the river is swollen, or that it will rain because ants are carrying their eggs to safety. So far, it would seem that ancient Indians were impressed by the sheer immensity of time and its role in measuring out the cycles of the world, but not so impressed that they were willing to admit that time is actually real. But let's not be hasty. We haven't yet considered the account of time given by the Vedic school most notable for its realist approach, Vaisheshika. Having defended the reality of such controversial items as qualities, universals, and the self, Kannada is not likely to adopt an anti-realist theory of time. His general strategy in the Vaisheshika Sutra is already suggested by the way he handles the topic of space, which you won't be surprised he also takes to be real. Space is like the self, in that it cannot be apprehended directly. We need to infer that it exists by observing things that are spatially arranged. Kanada proceeds on the assumption that relative arrangement is best explained in terms of contact. Suppose you see a young couple walking down the street holding hands. Their relative position is secured by the fact that they are in direct physical contact with one another. The young woman is to the young man's left because he is holding her right hand. But imagine the same couple a few years later, walking down the same street, but now with their child in the middle. The mother is again to the left of the father, despite the fact that she isn't in contact with him. She's holding the child's hand, not the father's. What then determines the relative position of the two parents? The answer, according to Kanada, is still contact. Not the contact between the parents, or indirect contact between the parents via their child, but the contact that both parents have with space. Space provides a framework within which the woman can be to the left of the man. For this answer to make sense, space needs to be the sort of thing that you can indeed contact, which for Kanada means that it needs to be a substance. Not just any substance, but a unique, ubiquitous, and eternal or timeless substance. It is an instrumental cause of every physical effect, with respect to which objects can have two sorts of spatial relations to one another, nearness and farness. It's thanks to the reality of space that we can say, for instance, the mother is to the father's left, or Germany is to the east of the United Kingdom. Given our earlier discussion of the vast extent of time, we might wonder how big space is. Does it have any limits at all, or just extend infinitely in all directions? 
Kanada's view on this is not entirely clear. Since he introduces space to explain the relations between physical objects, it seems that it would be enough for space to be the same size as the cosmos. That is, after all, where all the physical objects are, so there's no point imagining more empty space beyond the confines of the universe. On the other hand, Kanada says that most bodies are either long or short, which only makes sense if the bodies in question have parts that bound them at their edges. But space has no parts and hence no boundary, so how can it have a determinate size? Indeed, for this very reason, some later Vaisheshikas conclude that space is limited in extent. Others argue that it has a spatial dimension, which they call paramadirga, or maximal length. Kanada's views on time are very similar to what he says about space. Time, too, is a substance, it, too, is unique, eternal, and ubiquitous, and an instrumental cause of every effect. Just as space is the basis for relative judgments of position, time is the basis for relative judgments about past, present, and future events. It is thanks to time that we can say things like, I lived in the United Kingdom before I lived in Germany. There is, however, a difference between space and time, according to the Vaisheshikas. Whereas what is spatially near or far varies from person to person, what is temporarily near or far is the same for all persons. We might say that we are all right now in contact with the same present moment, whereas each of us is in contact with a different region of space. Unfortunately, the notion of a present moment turns out to be rather problematic. In the Nyaya Sutra, Gautama mentions an argument against the possibility of present time, which is strikingly reminiscent of a paradox introduced by the pre-Socratic philosopher Zeno. Imagine an object falling towards the ground. We can divide its path into two parts, the part it has already traversed and the part it has not yet traversed. Together, these two parts make up the whole path, measured out by past and future time. So there is no part of the trajectory left that could correspond to the present moment. Rather, that moment could only be an imaginary point that distinguishes elapsed time from the time that has not yet elapsed. Gautama replies that the concepts of past and future are relative to the present, not to one another. By this he may mean that, even if the present is only a boundary, it may still be real. After all, how could the present moment divide past from future if it were imaginary? Gautama also points out that, if there were no such thing as the present moment, then nothing could be known through our senses, because the external senses grasp things only in the present. As the example of the falling object shows, philosophical debates about time are inextricably bound up with philosophical debates about motion. Beginning with Prashastapada, early Vaisheshika philosophers took a serious interest in the behavior of projectiles and other moving bodies. Again, there is a striking parallel with Greek thought here, since his ideas are comparable with the celebrated theory of impetus, found in a near contemporary of Prashastapada, John Philoponus. Both lived in the 6th century AD, unless, of course, time is unreal. According to Prashastapada, motion is the cause of conjunction and disjunction. It comes in various varieties, each of which is explained by a quality in the bodies that move. For instance, heaviness causes downward motion, fluidity causes flowing motion, and so on. The claim that motions are always caused by qualities, and not by other motions, is intended to avoid an infinite regress where every motion has to be caused by another previous motion. 
Prashastapada also appeals to qualities to explain why motion continues once it has started. In particular, he refers to a quality called vega, impetus or speed. This is a tendency or disposition of the body comparable to other dispositions like elasticity. Impetus explains why falling things continue to fall, elasticity why bodies return to their original shape after being stretched or squeezed. Prashastapada further illustrates his idea of impetus by giving two examples, a fruit falling from a tree and a thrown javelin. Before it falls, the fruit is stationary in the branches of a tree. It does have the quality of weight, but this quality is being counteracted by its contact with the tree via its stem. Then the stem breaks. No longer impeded, the fruit's weight can now make it move to a new position. In light of Kanada's discussion of space, we can say that it goes from contacting one part of the substance of space to contacting another part, which is located just below. But the weight only makes the fruit start falling. To explain what happens next, we need to say that at the same moment, there is produced in the fruit an impetus. This causes a further motion downwards and so on for every subsequent time in the fruit's downwards fall. It's the fact that weight initiates motion, but then has no further effect, that encourages us to translate vega as impetus. It should not be confused with the idea of inertia. The point is not that bodies in motion will simply continue to move unless something impedes them, but that there is an internally impressed quality in the falling fruit, just like the internal quality of elasticity that causes a rubber ball to adopt a spherical form again after being compressed in your hand. Prashastapada's second example of the javelin is interesting because it involves something moving despite its weight, whereas the fruit moved because of its weight. The throwing of the javelin upwards gives it both an initial motion and an initial impetus. This impetus counteracts the javelin's weight so that it is able to continue traveling upwards. Eventually, the impetus is exhausted by contact with the air, and the javelin's weight takes over and imparts a downwards impetus at which point the javelin falls towards the ground, now behaving like a particularly long, sharp piece of fruit. So this explains the upward and then downward motion of the javelin. Assuming it is thrown at an angle, it will also move horizontally. Again, once it gets going, its continued flight is caused by an impetus imparted by the thrower, which will be depleted as a result of contact with the air. Of course, the harder you throw, the more impetus you impart to the javelin, which is what determines how far the javelin travels. Enough impetus, and you just might win an Olympic medal. Later Vaisheshikas try to extend the theory to other sorts of motion, such as the motion of an iron needle towards a magnet, the upward flickering of flames, or the circulation of air. Following Prashastapada's lead, they assume that in each case there must be some quality which initiates motion. Sadly, none of the qualities we've mentioned so far, weight, fluidity, elasticity, really seem to do the job, so the Vaisheshikas resort to something they call adrista, literally the unseen, which is postulated to account for movements like these. While this may look more like magical thinking than scientific explanation, we could actually see it as admirably open-minded. Realist as ever, Vaisheshika assumes that there is some genuine property in things making them behave the way they do, even if we cannot tell for sure what it is. Empirical investigation of each case may reveal more about these qualities. 
On the other hand, the unseen starts to assume a range of other more speculative functions in later Vaisheshika, for instance by explaining why atoms start to move at the creation of the universe, or our fate in the afterlife. The down-to-earth Prashastapada would probably not have approved. Despite these developments within the school's doctrine, it seems fair to describe Vaisheshika in general as down-to-earth, or perhaps better, naturalistic. They offer accounts of the physical world and the place of human beings within it, avoiding appeals to supernatural forces. God is given no significant explanatory role in the system, at least in early Vaisheshika. But if you're a fan of naturalism, there is another school that may appeal to you even more. The groups we've examined thus far defended a wide variety of metaphysical positions, but all of them gave some role to non-physical things, whether it was the gods, Brahman, or the human self and mind. But next on the agenda is a group of thinkers who shocked their contemporaries by banning all supernatural, non-physical entities from their worldview. This radical stance was defended by the Charvaka school, who could trace their philosophy to a figure from the time of the Buddha, by the name of Payasi. It's only natural that you should join us to hear all about him, next time on The History of Philosophy in India. Allah,